Good morning. Some of you may remember uh, last week, Keith was in the book of Philippians. We've been going through a series in this book. And he was in chapter two, where he was talking about the importance of being other centered. And he gave an example during that sermon where he talked about the fact that being other centered involves all of life, including areas like um, sexuality, sexuality in our marriage, where we need to think not just about our own needs, but about our partner's needs. We're going to take a pause from our series in the book of Philippians, and we're going to focus more on that topic that Keith was beginning to talk about last week, this area of sexuality in the Christian life. Particularly, we're going to talk about the Christian vision of sexuality. Now, this vision could be summed up, kind of the historic or biblical vision of uh, sexuality can be summed up as as this. God made sex to be enjoyed by a man and woman in marriage. God made sex to be enjoyed by a man and woman in marriage. Now, this vision has a lot of people concerned with it, both outside the church and inside the church. And I want to give you a few examples. This past, in terms of outside the church, this past week, I was reading an article called Why Serial Monogamy is the New Marriage. It was on yahoo.com. And I don't know if you know what serial monogamy is. If you th- remember Gwyneth Paltrow and this term conscious coupling and conscious uncoupling, The idea is that instead of one partner throughout life, there's an increased desire to say, I'm going to have uh, intentional uh, multiple partners through life, serial monogamy, as it's called. And what they're saying is this is really catching on. They quoted um, one marriage expert who said, with some of these changes she's seeing, it seems like there may be more changing in relationships in the last 30 years than the last 3,000. And she said some of the serial monogamy and a different way to think about sexuality from the more traditional historic Christian view may leave marriage as part of just kind of a 20th century relic. And people who take this view outside of the church would just say this Christian view is kind of unrealistic, if, if not just outdated. But there aren't just people outside the church who are concerned with this vision. There are people inside the church as well. I was at a training a couple of weeks ago in relation to my job as a social worker, and it was being held at a church. So I was talking to someone at the church, just learning a little bit more about them and their church. And what they said was, what they said was, we're trying to become more open as a church. We're trying to become more welcoming. And they said the way they're doing that is they're beginning to marry same-sex couples. And they feel that that's what they need to do to be more welcoming. We all want as Christians to be welcoming to all people. And that's the decision they're making. And I think for a lot of Christians, um, they empathize with that perspective. If you are like me, you may have friends or coworkers or neighbors or family members who have um, same-sex attraction and who are in a relationship like that. And you want to love them well. And you're thinking, how do I do that? And for some, they say, what we need to do is we need to reform Christian vision of marriage. Now, you have another group, kind of a final group within the church, who's saying, I don't think we should change the vision, but it's a really hard vision to live out of. And they might be saying, I'm actually failing at living out this vision. So for me, this is just me, over the last six years, I've known six different Christian leaders who've uh, been in affairs. That's just people I know over the last six years, and that's just including Christian leaders. So even if you accept 
this Christian vision of marriage, you may say, but it's just so hard to live out of. Isn't there a different way to think of this, uh, of marriage? Isn't there a different way to think about sexuality and how I express it in my life? Well, I want to talk today about how we at Grace, how we as followers of Christ should respond to all these changes going on, the concerns people have outside the church and inside the church with this Christian vision. What do we do if we're going to be faithful to Christ and if we're going to love our culture well? That's what I want to look at today. And I want us to open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 12 through 20. And I want to point out, as as people have questions about sexuality and the Christian life, uh, you might think about that quote that I mentioned, more changes going on in 30 years than the last 3,000, and think, Man, all this is kind of new. Where does this all come from? But actually, people have been asking questions about sexuality within the church since it began. The Christians in Corinth had written Paul a letter sharing some of their different concerns and sharing a number of different questions they had about a variety of things in life, one of which was this area of sexuality. And Paul's going to include answers and thoughts to some of the things that they say in his letter. So what I want to do is we're going to read through verses 12 through 20, and then uh, we're going to talk through it. 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The main idea here, when you look through this passage, is actually summed up in the last verse. Paul says, so, based on everything I've said so far, glorify God in your body. Specifically in the context of sexuality, which is what he's talking about in this passage. What Paul's basically saying is, worship God with your body. This concept should really be at home for us here at Grace. If you remember, what is our mission? Our mission is to live a life of worship together. And the reason we said live a life of worship is because it's not enough for us just to say we're going to worship God here on Sunday. Or we're going to worship God in our small group gatherings. We say we want to worship God at work. We want to worship God in our home. We want to worship God in our marital relationships and our friendships. All of life should be about worshiping God. And that includes this area of sexuality. Now it brings up the question, how do you worship God with your body? And there are basically three different things that I believe as we walk through this passage, we're going to see Paul encouraging us to do. We're going to worship God in this way. First, to embrace God's vision of sexuality. Second, to know when to remove ourselves from sexual temptation. And then lastly, to know our God. So let's walk through each of those as we go through this passage. First, 
Um, it's worth saying the Corinthians are having some struggles with the Christian vision of sexuality. And this comes up in Paul's response. They have these slogans that they're saying that Paul responds to. The first slogan is in verse 12. They said, everything is lawful for me. What do, mean, what do they mean by that? What they mean is um, there is no boundary around how I live. That includes my sexuality. And, and particularly, that's what he's talking about here. They're saying there is no law. Every, everything is open. If I desire it, it's okay to do. And what they've done is they've taken Paul's teaching about the fact that for the Christian, we're not under the Jewish law anymore. We're under grace and we're under the Holy Spirit's guidance. They've taken that teaching about freedom from the law and they're applying it to this area of sexuality. And they're saying, everything's lawful. Everything's open, right? In verse 13, they have a second slogan. And it goes like this, if you read. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Why is he talking about food? What's that about? What they mean by that is, just as it's natural to feed a hungry stomach with food, so it's natural to feed our sexual desires in the way that they need to be met. So to sum up their perspective, it's this. It's we are free to meet any sexual desire we have. It's just a natural thing for us to do. Paul's going to respond to them, and he's going to base his response out of this Christian vision of sexuality that we talked about earlier. And Paul's basically going to say to them, just because something feels natural and you desire it, doesn't mean it's actually helpful to you. That's why he says everything is lawful, but not everything is helpful. And he goes on in verse 13 to say it can actually begin to dominate you. This idea of sexual freedom has been really popular in our own Western culture over the last 30, 40 years. If you remember, much was made of the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s, where it was argued of the value of kind of putting aside sexual constraints and being more free to do what comes natural. The sexual desires we have to meet those because it's just a natural thing to do. One of um, the children of this age was Don Henley. Like every third sermon, I have a Don Henley reference because they're my favorite. He's in my favorite band, but Don Henley is in the Eagles. And basically Don Henley and the Eagles as a band are known for their sexual um, relationships. They just had a lot of different women over the years in their band life. Beyond that time, you went talk about serial monogamy. Don Henley really exemplified that idea of being with many different women. And then shockingly to a lot of his fans in the mid 1990s, he decided to get married and he wrote an album called Inside Job, right after he got married. And if you know about his life and you listen to the lyrics, you can see that he's talking about what a struggle it was for him to move from one lifestyle to being a married man. And he talks about the difficulties of um, the memories that come with all the different sexual relationships he had. The habits that had been formed through years and years of years of being used to going from one woman to the next. And that sexual freedom that he really embraced actually wasn't helpful to him. Now, Don Henley could have argued, but it's what was natural. You know, a lot of men, if they're honest, would say they have a natural inborn desire to sleep with more than just one woman. And if you go with that reasoning, you say, well, whatever I do is, as long as it's natural and it's just an inborn desire I have, then, you know, we should be able to, we should be able to feed that, that desire. 
that's not actually helpful. Probably my wife, Debbie, would say, if anytime I had a natural desire to sleep with another woman, I did it. Probably not helpful to her. Probably not helpful to me. Probably not helpful to society, my children. Just because you have a natural desire for something doesn't mean that desire is going to be helpful for you to meet. Now, some of you might think, this Christian vision, it's kind of prudish. It's kind of restrictive. Um, This God of the Bible, I don't know that I want anything to do with, with a God who has such a low view of the body and a low view of sexuality. But actually, just the opposite is true. If you go through scripture, you see a very high view of the body and a high view of sex. First, a high view of the body. Genesis 1, God says about all his creation, including the human body, that it was good. In verse 14 of the passage we're reading, Paul's going to kind of go on a streak here where he talks about the goodness of the body. He references the fact that God didn't just raise Jesus' soul, his spirit from the dead. He raised his body from the dead. When we die as Christians, God's not just going to raise our spirit. We're not going to be floating on clouds. He's going to raise our bodies to a new heaven and a new earth where we get to live physically, not just spiritually. And he goes on to say that even now our bodies, in the state we're in, we represent Christ. We're a physical representation of Christ in the world right now. We are the body of Christ. The Corinthians and the Greek culture they lived in had a very low view of the body. They, they quoted um, one philosopher who basically said, the body is a tomb. It's just a tomb. What's, what matters is my immortal soul. For the Christian, they have a totally different and higher view of the body. And the same could be said of the Christian view of sex. Paul's going to quote in this passage about the fact that when a man and woman come together, they become one. In Genesis 2, you see the sacredness of this act, that people become one physically, become one relationally through this act of sex. As you move forward through the Bible, you can see in the book of Proverbs, far from being prudish, a man is told to basically enjoy his wife's body instead of enjoying the body of mistresses that he can be tempted to. Again, not prudish. If you read the book of the Song of Songs, you see different chapters where a, man, a married man and woman are basically praising one another's body in some pretty specific ways. And then if you come to the New Testament, in the chapter right after the one we're reading, chapter 7, you see Paul not just encouraging, but really telling married couples to make sure they're having sex, because if they don't, they may open themselves up to temptation moving forward. So far from a low view of the body, it has a very high view of the body. And this is why Paul in verse 15, again, in trying to encourage the Christians to embrace God's vision for sexuality, he says to them to make sure that they are not uniting with prostitutes. Why? Where where does this come from, this idea of prostitution? Well, in Corinth, it was a city where there was a lot of prostitution going on. There were a pagan temple there with a lot of prostitution. There was also, because it was a port city, a lot of people traveling in and out. And they were tempted to be doing this. But Paul's saying, given what sexuality is and the union that happens when you unite with a prostitute or anyone who's not your one spouse, what you're doing is you are becoming one with a number of different people. And you're bringing Christ's presence, you know, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're bringing Christ's presence into that relationship. This value that God places then on sex is something that's kind of summarized well, I think, by Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, The Meaning of Marriage. This is what they say. They say, 
Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Now, this begs a question. What about people who are single? Where does this leave them if the place where God says you are to, you know, have sex is between a marriage relationship between a man and woman? Where does that leave you? This was um, dealt with a lot in a book by a person named Julia Dwin. She's a Washington Post reporter, I believe. And it was, the book was called Quitting Church. And she's saying that a lot of single people are actually leaving the church. And one of the reasons she gives is because they're tired of being told to just be content with their singleness. And they're saying, you know, the person who tells me to be content is usually standing up there with a spouse who they go home to and a family they go home to, yet they're going to tell me I should be content. So what should we do about that? Well, Julia Duane offers a couple different ideas. One, she offers the idea of becoming more like the Indian church. That sounds strange to you. What does that mean? Well, the Indian church, apparently, when one of its members are single and they want to get married, they take it upon themselves to help this person to meet various sorts of people. Now, some people have a gift for being able to do this. This is not an area I'll serve in as a church, in the church. But for people who say, you know, it's still my desire to be married. Do we as a church family say, we're going to help introduce, you know, you to different people. Julia Dwin in her book quoted Martin Luther King Jr.'s niece, where um, she basically said, this is so important because there's a shortage of good Christian single men. I was preaching to my wife. She was like, amen. (laughs) So how are we going to help people in that way? Take it upon ourselves. At the same time, we need to be balanced in this. There are people who would say, yes, I'm single. And please don't be introducing me to people. You know, I don't want that. And I am actually content. And I'd rather just not be treated like a second class citizen in the church because I'm somehow less than a full human being because I'm not married. And we need to be making sure that we are respecting people, whether they're single or married, and that we are, one person I was talking to recently was just saying, um, she knew I was going to be speaking about this, and she said, could you please encourage the church to invite people who are single over to their homes to show hospitality, to treat them as a member of your church family, and not just think, oh, everyone's got a family to go home to. This is Wesley Hill. Wesley Hill is a Christian theologian out in the Pittsburgh area. Wesley Hill identifies someone as somebody who has um, same-sex attraction. And Wesley Hill has written a book called Spiritual Friendship. And in the book, he talks about the fact that he's chosen, because he believes in the biblical vision of sexuality, he's chosen abstinence for himself. But he talks in this book about the importance of the Christian community treating people who've taken this path, treating people who are single as part of their spiritual family, as the primary family that they are part of, rather than just treating them again as second-class citizens and assuming they'll make it fine in their own place in the church. So in this first section, verses 12 through 17, what we have here really is is Paul encouraging the Corinthian believers who are really struggling with this vision of Christian sexuality to embrace God's vision of sexuality. And and I believe for us as a church, we need to embrace it both in our 
relationships with one another, in our relationships with our spouse, in our relationships with people who are single, so that we can be a unified community in this way. Now, this brings us up to the second way we can go about worshiping God with our bodies. First, embracing God's vision of sexuality. Second, I'm going to call this knowing when to run. Knowing when to run. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Language Paul uses, flee sexual immorality. And Paul may have in his mind right now the passage from Genesis 39, if, you've, if you remember it, where Joseph is basically having his boss's wife um, tell him he wants to sleep, tell him she wants to sleep with him. And he doesn't really think about it a lot and weigh the pros and cons. He just runs in that passage. And Paul's saying it's so important that you do that because when you don't and you fall into temptation, you can actually wind up sinning not just against other people, but against your own body. And your body's supposed to be a really sacred thing given God's high view of sexuality. Now, when do we run? What does that actually look like in our context? I'm going to give you a few examples. One, there might be people in your life that it really makes sense for you to know when to run from. Is there somebody, for example, whom you work with? They're not your spouse and you're married, but you really enjoy going by their cubicle. You really enjoy walking by their office. You really enjoy kind of the inside jokes you guys have. And you think it's harmless. You've maybe even said this horrible phrase, they're just my work spouse. I've heard people say that. So you may be thinking that and, this isn't me just being legalistic. It's important to walk away from those situations because the reality is a lot of people will tell you when they've gotten into a bad place sexually into adultery, they typically, they typically wake up one day and find themselves in bed with a person they had never met before. It's usually an incremental thing where you become more and more and more comfortable with someone you're very attracted to and one thing leads to another. Know when you need to walk away from relationships, whether it's a coworker, a neighbor, any sphere of life. Second, you may need to know when to walk away from certain types of social media. A lot's being written about the amount of people who've reconnected with high school sweethearts through social media and actually gotten into affairs through that process. About three years or so ago, I had someone seek to be my Facebook friend who was a girl I dated in high school. And I thought to myself, do I really need to be Facebook friends with this person? Am I Benefiting and all in my life from corresponding with an old girlfriend on Facebook? No. You know, I think we need to be wise about one of those times, not to be legalistic, but one of those times where we say, what's best for me is to walk away. There's also times where we need to think about not just people, but things we're looking at, images, namely pornography. Um, I remember one time years ago, I had a guy who I was serving in my job as a social worker who said, I want you to help me. I want you to take me to the corner store so I can get pornography. And I told him I wasn't really comfortable with that. And he said, but it's just art. Don't ever, if you're a guy, don't ever say that to me because we just know we're lying to each other. And I will buy you a year membership to the Philadelphia Art Museum so that <laughs> your artistic needs are met over the next year. So let's just be honest. And there are reasons why this can be a concern. This is not just a guy issue, by the way. I was talking to someone, a female who works in a college campus ministry, who was saying to me, increasingly, 
females are into pornography as well. And it sometimes takes different forms, but a lot of times it's things you read that lead from one thing to another. You know, very well known in our culture of the last year or so is Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, a lot of women read that and it can lead to one thing and to a next thing after that. And there's a couple reasons why this can be a concern. One, it can really um, become an addiction. And it becomes something that's really hard to get out of and something that if it's not impacting you now in a relationship, can impact you in a future relationship with your spouse. So also, in addition to it being addicting, it can form certain memories where you, you know, remember all the things you've seen and then you compare your spouse or your future spouse and you're really putting your future spouse or your current spouse into a bad place when they have to compare with the images, the doctored images that they're showing you when you look at pornography. And I say this, I'm saying it at length because I believe there are people here who are into pornography because studies show there's people at every church who are into pornography. So I would encourage you for your own mind's sake and for the sake of your spouse or your future spouse to really flee that. No one to run from that. Now, where do you run to? When this happens, where do you flee to? It's important that you just don't try to do all this in your own strength. It's important to have people you can go to about this, to have friends whom you respect. I have someone I meet with every other week, and we meet, we talk about a variety of things, but this is one area we touch on because we want to make sure that we have a place where we can talk, hold each other accountable, help each other think about ways we can stay faithful to our spouses. And if you don't have anyone like that, I would encourage you to take that first step. No one wants to actually, a lot of people want this, but they don't know how to take that first step. Take that first step to ask somebody if they'd be willing to talk to you about this area of your life. My heart really goes out to students and teens in this area um, because it's kind of a whole new world from even when I was a teenager. I'm not that old. I'm 36. But when I was a teenager, I had a TV in my bedroom. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. But now kids, they don't need a TV in their bedroom. They can have the internet available online with all sorts of different images. And I would encourage you, if you're a student, if you're a teenager here, to really consider um, talking with a youth leader, talking to somebody in the church whom you respect, whom you think may be able to um, help you think through strategies to be able to follow Christ in this way. <clears throat> now. In addition to having people you can go to, I would also encourage you um, to go to your spouse. You know, this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about the importance of taking your sexual needs to your spouse. Because it's not just about um, going to friends. It's also about making sure your relationship with your spouse, if you have one, is what it needs to be. And that you're not taking this area of your life, the sexuality, and applying it to just things you see, applying it to other people but applying it to your marriage relationship. And finally, and most importantly, that you're going to God with this. God doesn't want you having to fight this battle alone. This is why a few chapters later from the section we're reading, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, Paul says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. When we are in temptation, we are not defenseless. God is there to help us in light of that. And he says there's no temptation in which he's not there to help you. 
And this brings me to my last kind of major way that we can go about worshiping God with our bodies. I had said before, we want to embrace God's vision of sexuality. We, we need to know when to run from temptation. And thirdly, we need to know our God. And this comes up in the last couple of verses of this passage, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, when Paul is appealing, the reason knowing your God is so important to this conversation we're having is because when Paul is appealing to these Christians to make these decisions to worship God in their bodies, he's appealing to them on the basis of their faith in Christ. He's not appealing to people outside the church about some common or abstract sexual ethic. He's appealing to Christians based on their relationship to God to worship him in the way that God says he's designed us to worship him in this area of sexuality. So he's going to say that it's important that you know God because there's implications for knowing God, not just a one-time conversion to God, but an ongoing relationship that can help you in this area. Paul uses an economic metaphor here. What I mean by that is he says, basically, imagine that you have a master who is sin and he owns you. Jesus, through what he did on the cross, basically paid his life to that master so that you would no longer be owned by sin, but you would be owned by God. So that you would no longer just be owned by your desires, but that you would be owned by a loving God who loves you enough to give his life for you. And when you have that idea, which is the gospel, that Jesus loves you, it can make a great impact on some of the decisions we make in this area of sexuality. Few implications for this. First, I think it has an implications for your identity as a person. If, especially, I think, if you're a female, you have to live in a world where you're constantly having to compare yourself with images of different sorts of women who look certain types of ways. And that can be overwhelming to have to constantly feel bad about yourself because you're comparing yourself to some unrealistic picture somewhere. When we know that we have been loved by God and that we are first and foremost through knowing him, his child, that forms our identity so that we can be helped to remember, wait a minute, God owns me. I'm not owned by societal expectations. My identity is rooted in my relationship with God first and foremost, not in some sexualized identity I've got to maintain. I think the second thing that knowing God through Christ's death on your behalf can do for you in this area is it can help you in how you think about past sexual sins. All of us have committed past sexual sins. If you immediately say to me, well, but wait a minute, I've never had sex with anyone outside of marriage. If you go to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, Jesus says, anyone who has even looked at another person lustfully has actually committed adultery with them in their heart. You can't escape the fact that there are things in your life, we all have areas in our life that we regret, and we'd say, I wish that hadn't happened. But what we have through Jesus' death on the cross for us is an opportunity to be forgiven of all of that and to take that sin that we've carried around with ourselves and lay it on Christ. We're not owned by that past sin. We're owned by Christ. We're not owned by some past partner. We're owned by Christ. And then finally, I think it has implications for our relationships with other people. Paul says in these verses, 
that we're actually the temple of the Holy Spirit because of our relationship with God, knowing him through Jesus' death for us, we are his temple, which means we represent him to other people. How do we represent him to other people in a world where, as I talked about in my opening, there are a lot of concerns with the Christian vision of sexuality? There's a recent book, a book that came out a few years ago, which did a study on how do people who aren't Christians view Christians? It's the first thing they think about. And the first thing they think about Christians, according to this study, is that they are anti-gay. Not they love Jesus. Not they're really forgiving people. Not even that they're holy people who really love their spouses, but they're anti-gay. And this leads a lot of Christians to respond, and to me, a couple of different unhelpful ways. First, it causes people to become more shrill and harsh in how they talk about these things. They say, I stand for truth. Because I stand for truth, I'm going to tell it like it is. And they think they're being Christ-like when they do that. And then you basically more and more and more don't reflect Christ, don't humbly reflect our servant king very well to a watching world. But you have another extreme to me. And this extreme is where people will say, I do not want us to be known for this. So I think we just need to change, reform this Christian vision we have so that, as I talked about in my opening, we can be more welcoming and therefore people will not think that we are judgmental. I think that when I look at Jesus' life, he doesn't go in either of those directions. And I see this throughout Jesus' life, but I think one potential picture that's clarifying for me is in John chapter 8, Jesus has brought um, to him a woman who is just caught in adultery. And people are wanting to stone her according to Old Testament law. And Jesus, to me, in that moment, is able to challenge both of those different sides that I just mentioned. One, he says to the people who are about to stone her, well, yeah, you who is without sin, you cast the first stone. You who doesn't have any sexual sin, go ahead and, and kill her. And obviously, they all drop their stones. So Jesus' challenges, sort of a self-righteous perspective that some people have in this area. But when he tells the woman, he says to her, they don't condemn you, neither do I. He also says to her, go and sin no more. He doesn't just say, there is no longer a vision I have for this area of life. Go and get involved in another adulterous relationship. He says, go and sin no more. Jesus took a third way to me versus some of these polar opposite ways. And I, and I saw this this past week, the value to me of this third way. I was in a training, it was a social work training, and uh, it was about the area of spirituality. And there was a person there who raised their hand. A lot of people there at the training were talking about how much they were wounded in the church. But a particular person raised her hand and she said, I'm from the LGBTQ community and I have been extremely wounded in, in the church. And um, she talked about this for a little while. And I waited till after the training and I went and I spoke with her and I told her I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor. And, and I said, I, I apologize that you've gone through so much pain, you know, in your experience with the church. And we talked longer and I asked her, as we learned more about each other and what we thought about things, I asked her, is there a way for someone like me who believes what I do? Because while I talked about the fact that Jesus and his death is central. That's what the gospel is all about. I also talked about the fact that I honestly do believe that the Christian vision for sexuality is what I've already said to you guys it is. And while by the end of our conversation, she didn't agree, we didn't 
see things the same way. She reached out and she, unexpectedly to me, she hugged me. And she said, thank you so much for just being willing to listen to me and ask me how I was doing and express that you cared. I don't think I did anything special. I just listened. And it, it became clear to me that I believe you don't have to either become shrill to stand up for truth, nor do you need to put aside truth in order to be loving. I think the way of Jesus is where we seek to be both thoughtfully true and loving and relationally kind, as we're called by in the book of Colossians, towards all people, regardless of where they're coming from, regardless of their view of sexuality. And my hope for us as a church moving forward is that we would all worship God. We would live a life of worship, as we say, and that we would worship God in this area of sexuality too, that we'd be faithful and continue to embrace God's vision of sexuality, that we would know when there are moments where we need to remove ourselves so that we can be faithful to him and to our spouse, that we'd be a community that is, first and foremost, a spiritual family, whether you are married or not, and that we would, first and foremost, know our God and do everything in this area not because of just some external ethic, but because it's rooted in wanting to worship him. That's my hope and that's my prayer for us. Let's pray. Father, this is a difficult area and this is an area where um, much is being said, both inside and outside the church. We want to love you well and we want to love other people well. It is daunting to think about the fact that you've, made us your representatives. And we know we fail in this area. And we know that we fail in worshiping you with our bodies. And we all come to you in need of your grace. Pray for the people who are here that you wouldn't let any of the things we've talked about cause guilt, but that it would bring freedom, freedom of what you accomplished through your death on the cross for us in the atonement that you provide. Thank you for your love for us. And thank you that you are a good master. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.